Hi listener, this is Nina popping in in my capacity as editor and through a head full of cold to give you a quick content note ahead of this episode about hard hungry winters. As you can tell from the title, we're going to be talking a little bit about starvation. We touch a little bit on dangerous situations for children in workhouses in our discussion of Cora Harrison's The Famine Secret. There's also a discussion of plague and parents dying really early on in that book. Also, in our picture book section, I mispronounce the word Romani, so I'm sorry about that. Say it like Matt, don't say it like me. Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we have all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Rural Dolls, beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. So each episode we review one picture book and one chapter book. We started off with the books that we read as kids. But if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please do get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. So this month, as the days are growing short and the nights are getting long and cold, at least up here in the northern hemisphere of the world, we're reading around hard winters. And it really is. (laughs) We have two books which come good in the end, but are united by a theme of not knowing whether you're going to have enough food to survive the winter. So yeah, we're going there with this one. Yeah. We're, we're going to be talking about the effects of the potato blight and the bitter winter of 1845 in and Island. And that's with our chapter book, The Famine Secret by Cora Harrison, which we'll have in a bit. But first, we've got a really gorgeous picture book, Yoki and the Pano Grey. The words are by Richard O'Neill and Catherine Quornby, and the drawings are by Marika Nellison. Matt, would you like to summarise the story for us? Yes, I would. I'd love to. It's a lovely story. It's about a young boy called Yoki, who is in a Romani traveller community. So in a large extended family of travellers. And at the beginning, all is well. It's coming towards summer and Dad's saying it's time to pack up and move on. And there's dancing and there's food and there's stories around the fire. And Yoki's stories are the best stories, everyone always admit. And then it gets towards winter and things kind of get hard. They're not sure where their meals are going to come from. Their horse gets sick. They're getting ripped off in all the markets. They're getting moved on. And things are sort of pretty bleak. But they still sit around the fire every evening and listen to stories. And Yoki has a particular story he tells about the Pano Grai, which is a sort of mystical white horse that flies down and rescues the whole family and flies them off to a land of plenty. And some of the community start getting annoyed at this and saying to his parents, why are you letting him fill our heads with such nonsense but then the retort to that is really lovely there's a lovely line from his grandma furry die told them to sit down 
Sometimes, dear ones, all we have are our dreams, she said. They keep us going until the next opportunity appears. Tonight, all we have is Yoki's story. Let's enjoy it. Yeah, that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. So it's got that sort of sense of quiet desperation, mm. but that clinging to stories. and Yeah, and I love that, that they're the only thing we've got until we get through to the next opportunity, the next bit of sunshine or good fortune. So let's at least enjoy that. Let's not deprive ourselves of fantasy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very much a storyteller's mm. story, isn't it? It's a story about stories. And then at the end, as you might imagine, the Pano Grai appears for real and it flies down and it saves the family and it takes them off to a land where there's lots of food and there's enough for everyone and, and everyone's happy. So yeah, it's got it becomes a sort of bit of a meta myth within a myth. Very much a storyteller's story about how important stories and imagination are. Richard O'Neill's biography says that he's a sixth generation storyteller in his family. Six generations of storytellers. That's fantastic. I sort of like to think of him as a descendant of Yoki. Yeah, I think that's what I mean about it being a storyteller's story. It's got that slight autobiographical feel in that, you know, it's a myth. But it's that kind of experience of being the person who's into telling stories and and kind of speaking for the importance of that. It's a really lovely book. It's a very neat story. So there's a couple of elements that feel um, like they're very lightly touched on in the story, but they refer to actual historical events. So one of them is like the Enclosure Act of Britain between the 1600s and like 1920-something. Do you know about those? No, actually I don't. So before about 1600, most of the land in Britain was common land. Right. Apart from the bits around castles and manor houses, most of the land was common land. So you were allowed to graze your stock animals. You were allowed to grow some vegetables. You were allowed to hunt and fish on most of the land in Britain. And then there are a number of acts written into law, basically over about 400 years that made now almost all of the land in Britain is privately owned. Almost all of it. Yeah. And of course, this massively affected poor people, people who didn't own land. That's when poaching became a thing. It didn't used to be a crime to take a fish out of the river until the river belonged to someone. Um, And even even on the land that was owned by nobles before, the peasants did have a right to use it. And then suddenly they put fences around everything, mm. and that's why it's called Enclosure. I've got a folk song that I found about Enclosure. Could I just read it to you? Yeah, of course, yeah. They hang the man and flog the woman Who steals the goose from off the common Yet let the greater villain loose That steals the common from the goose The law demands that we atone When we take things we do not own But leaves the lords and ladies fine Who take things that are yours and mine the poor and wretched don't escape if they conspire the law to break. This must be so, but they endure, those who conspire to make the law. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose off of the common. The geese will still a common lack till they go and steal it back. Ah, that's great. That's the yeah. goose and the common. It's a union song from about the 1700s, um, author unknown. That's a proper folk poem, isn't it? Yeah. I thought you'd like it. Proper protest song. And another of the populations that it massively affected were travellers. Of course. I mean, it's still true now. 
There are so many places, most places they're not allowed even now to park their caravans. And, you know, yeah, the government is yeah, still yeah, criminalising yeah. nomadic life even now. Yeah. And another thing was mechanisation. Yoki's family, at the beginning of the book, are relying on seasonal work in farms to make their money in the autumn so that they make it through winter. And when they go to the farmer this year, he's bought a combine harvester. Come back when you've learned to drive. Yeah. So those are two, like, massive things. Yeah. <laughs> affect Yaki's family and the, the way they live their lives. Something I really loved right at the beginning where they're just showing the way that they live their lives normally without massive strain is the way that their year is structured. So they've got the part of the year where they make stuff and they craft all these beautiful things. Yeah. Yaki carves wooden spoons and his sister Serafina makes paper roses. It's not referred to in the text, but as all this gorgeous embroidery as well and Yoki's father's a tinsmith and he goes around fixing people's pots and pans and sharpening their tools and knives did you have a look at the end papers i'll show you them now it's like an embroidery of all the things that are in the story oh. with little white horses and little red roses and i noticed there are triscales those little three-pointed curly things oh oh yeah 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 that's a Celtic symbol. I saw that a lot growing up in Brittany, and you see it in Ireland as well. I knew it was a Celtic thing. I didn't yeah. know the name for it. The Romani people originally came from North India, but I think a lot of the traveller communities sort of bled together and intermarried and stuff, and I was wondering whether there was a bit of a Celtic influence from, you know, the Scottish and Irish traveller people in that pattern or I don't know whether it was just yeah. some piece of fancy from the illustrator I really like the illustrations yeah they're lovely they're really nice definitely that's really interesting about all the historical I mean I'd, I'd like I hadn't picked up on the historical connections but I think I definitely did like it's not like dead explicit but there's that sense of times getting hard and that sense of like mistrust and shunning and being kind of like locked out and like obviously you've got the thing of they get to place and people are ripping them off in yeah. markets and they put fences up and they're like no you need to move on and but from that like child narrator that's got that kind of innocent it's just presenting the facts of it yeah. which is sort of more effective in some ways because you just get that bluntness of like okay we're not welcome we need to go no the pictures are great as well um I don't know how you'd describe them. I think you were saying they were reminded you of the sad book. Yeah, so all the pictures where the folky are gathered around the fire for the stories, they're sort of lit from the middle of the picture by this like warm yellow glow, and then you can see them silhouetted against the fire. Really reminded me of those bits in Michael Rosen's sad book, illustrated by mm. Quentin Blake, those bits with the candles. It really reminded me of that. Yeah. The play with the light's really good, and I also think it's interesting how many times she decided to take a bird's eye view. It's not a bird's eye view, it's the Pano Grai's eye view, mm. because it's the Pano Grai that comes down from the sky yeah. and saves them <laughs> and like helps them look around. Yeah. There's a really good picture when they're leaving the waste ground where they had camped, and it's really barren, where it's bird's eye view, and you can just see that there's hardly any plants the ground's really bare, there's nothing for the animals to eat. And then there's another bird's eye view of the new place that they find. And everything's green and there's loads of bits. I think like the use of like different points of view is really interesting in this book. Yeah. We've talked about that with kids' books before, haven't we? Where you can sort of... We talked about it with Peeny Butter Fudge. 
Yeah, it's it's almost that comic book thing if you can direct where the point of view, where the camera's coming from. Mm. Yeah. Is it watercolour? It's sort of watercolour and pencil, I think. Watercolour pencil. Richard O'Neill's done a few others, a few other books for children, picture books. Yeah. He also did the voiceover for Roads from the Past. It's a short documentary film about what a traveller is, what Roma is, what gypsies are. It's for children. It's a little animated film about the history of, you know, nomadic communities in Britain. Um, and he lent his voice to that project, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Who's it for? Everyone. Yeah. For traveller kids, it'll be a mirror book, and for settled kids, it'll be a window book. It's kind of a longer picture book. I'd say you start around maybe four, and you could, mm-hmm. you know, you could do it uh, up right through primary school, I think. It's for people who like horses. And storytellers as well. Yeah, definitely storytellers. Yeah. Yeah. Are we ready to move on? Yeah. Okay, so our second book is The Famine Secret by Cora Harrison, and it's part of the Drumshee Timeline series that she wrote, all based around an Iron Age fort that was on the land of her farm where she lived, and the first one is called Nuala and Her Secret Wolf, and it's set in the Iron Age, and they go all the way up through into the Internet Age. This book that we're doing, The Famine Secret, is the fifth book in the series, and it's set during the Great Famine in Ireland in the 1840s. Yeah. Um, I want to do a quick shout-out, because I found out about this book through Caroline O'Donoghue's Twitter I don't think it was very big in the UK, but it was really big in Ireland. Yeah, I've de- I mean, I've definitely seen on Goodreads and stuff, there's a few people saying like, ah, this series was my whole childhood. So I think it's I think it's one of them yeah. that some people kind of completely grew up with. Yeah. And I can see why. Like, uh, you know, I'm definitely keen to go and read some of the others. It's a lovely writing style. Yeah, it is lovely writing. Cora Harrison's another one of those writers, like Eva Ibbotson from last month, who did children's literature and romance. Right. Okay. In fact, I think mainly she's known for romance now, but her kid lit's really good. The writing's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shall we dive in with a synopsis? Yeah, totally. Okay. So The Famine Secret is the story of the McMahon family who rent a large-ish farm, 20 acres, in Drumshee, which is near Ennis, in the west of Ireland. And they're quite a middle-class family compared to the other farmers around them. Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're still working the land, but they've got a bit more of it to work. So they're able to diversify their crops. They haven't just got potatoes. Yeah. They've got oats as well, and they've got livestock, which not everybody has. So all is well in their family. There are four children. There is the oldest boy, Martin. At the beginning of the book, he's 12. And then one year younger than him are twin girls. We have twins again. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. More twin girls, yeah. Deirdre and Fiona. And then there's their little brother, Daniel. And they all go to school. And Fiona in particular loves school. She's really good at it. Um, She knows almost as much as the teacher. And she reads so beautifully that um, on the day that the landlord visits their school, 
he gives her a gift of a brand new book by Mr. Charles Dickens, you know, a very famous writer at the time. He gives her Oliver Twist. Mm. Which becomes pertinent. <laughs> yes. And the teacher's even talking about, like, in a couple of years, training Fiona up as a teacher. Mm. And her parents are really proud of her for that. But when Fiona reads Oliver Twist, she thinks, maybe I don't even want to be a teacher. Maybe I want to be a writer, like Mr. Charles Dickens. Mm. Mm. So I'll I'll call it early. Fiona's my favourite character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So all is going well until they come home from school one day and they find that the potatoes have just rotten in the fields. Yeah. They're just, there's a horrible smell and even the ones that look okay on the outside are all rotten and creamy on the inside. And this is a disaster for the McMahons, but it's even worse for their neighbours because their neighbours don't have enough land to have also yeah. grown oats, so they're going to have plenty of porridge. Yeah, yeah. There's no potatoes to sell, so there's no money really to keep going to school, even though school is very important to them, especially for Fiona. Mm-hmm. The elder brother, Martin, drops out of school to help his dad on the farm, and he's quite happy to do that because he doesn't like school. But soon the school has to close anyway, because hardly anybody can afford the one penny a week fee mm-hmm. per child. Yeah. And also... People are dropping like flies because of hunger and because of a whole bunch of diseases that start going around, in particular the black fever. So Mr. and Mrs. McMahon are having some conflict because Mrs. McMahon wants to share their food with their neighbours. And Mr. McMahon says they can't afford to because it needs to last them through until the next potato crop in eight months' time. Mm. And also the neighbours have got the fever and they don't want to catch the fever. Yeah. But Mrs. McMahon goes against her husband's wishes and goes and shares some food anyway with their nearest neighbours whose son is sick. And so Nora McMahon gets sick as well. And there's this awful scene where the twins come in and like, sort of find her on the floor. She's dropped a big pail of boiling water and she can't move and her skin's gone all blotchy. Mm-hmm. It's really frightening. They fetch their dad... The dad orders all the children outside and they're not coming back inside until their mother's better. And then we have a flash forward to the following spring. Both the parents are dead. The children are managing on the farm by themselves, but the landlord won't let to them anymore. And so they're off to the workhouse. Yeah. And I think that's where we'll leave it for synopsis. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that it does, it does sort of come good in the end that yeah, but let's not say how. Yeah, yeah. And we spend most of the rest of the book in the workhouse. One of the brothers gets ill as well, doesn't he? And it's just sort of misery on misery. Yeah. But both the twins kind of find and nurture talents, which become a sort of point of rescue. Shall we talk about the twins? I'm interested, like, now that we've done a few twin books in a row, I'm interested in the twin representation. What do we think of these two? Um... Yeah, I guess you get a few different twin tropes, don't you? And I suppose it's hard to sidestep them because they've all been done. Well, the, the the particular brand of twin trope we have here is the diametric opposite <laughs> twins. Yeah. So yeah. Fiona is really gobby. She's really like quite self-centered, brilliant storyteller and brilliantly imaginative. But I think that that bit you're talking about right at the beginning where she's been told in school that she's going to be trained as a teacher, 
And then they get home and everyone's like, oh my God, the potatoes have failed. We're literally going to watch our children starve. And she's like, oh, well, I can't tell them about my good news now because they won't make enough of a fuss with everyone worried about these potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> It'll sully my moment of glory. Yeah, Martin Stewart <laughs> calls her on it. He's he's like, how on earth are you thinking about yourself now? And she's like, oh, I just know. I just didn't think it would be a good time to bring it up. And then she's like, damn it, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she's that, like... Really interesting character because so, so flawed. Like that in itself, like that's the kind of first character point you get from her and you're a bit like, Jesus. But there's that kind of innocence to it. She's just so wrapped up in her own world and she needs to be. Whereas Deirdre's kind of very quiet and very reserved and finds talents of her own. They both seem to be a little bit away with the fairies in different ways. Like, Like Deirdre's more practical like, neither of them have got amazing social skills for completely different reasons, right? Like, Fiona just bulldozes yeah. everything and Deirdre, like, won't engage at all. Like, Martin's the practical one. If we're leaping straight on Agenda Corner, there's there's that in play. There. Man of the house stuff going on there. Can't wait to get out of school, wants to be a farmer like his dad is. So he's the sort of, like, get up and go. He's a bit mean as well. He is a bit. He's got a good heart. Yeah, he's a he's a typical thirteen year old boy in a lot of ways, isn't he? And he has to be a lot more grown up than a lot of thirteen year olds. Yeah. Well that's it. I mean that's the thing with this book that straight from the top, like, really doesn't pull punches. Like I, I think the yeah. the bit of synopsis you just described is like the first twenty pages, right? And it's just like Oh yeah, they're in the workhouse by chapter four. Yeah. It's like one day everything was great and then the world ended. For me, reading it straight away, I think one of those things that like Kid Lit can do really well is that it's really well written, but it's so simplistically written that it's almost more harrowing. The next farm along, the family is like wife is just like sitting on the grass with her head in her hands crying. Oh, it's awful. I'm gonna read this bit for you, yeah. Instead of putting the potatoes in the baskets, Mr. O'Donoghue was throwing them behind him, one by one. His wife sat on the ground with her apron over her head, a picture of despair. Yeah. Like, I think it's really hard for us to imagine being where we are in the world and where we are in history and being, like, not so poor that we have to worry about starving. Just that sense of, like, not to downplay struggles like that now, but it's not even, like oh, we might have to go to a food bank. It's like the whole country has no food. Yeah. This failing means that we're done. It's pretty harrowing. Yeah, it's really bleak. But like you said, it's really direct and really well told. So she does gut punches really well. There's this bit right from the beginning of chapter three that I want to read. It's not funny, right? But it almost <laughs> like it almost made us do like a nervous laugh when I read it because it's... It's awful, but it's kind of structured how you would structure a joke. So this is the top of chapter three. So at this point, this is just after mum has got sick and collapsed and dad has told him, okay, you all have to leave the house. I'm going to look after you, mum. You can sleep in the barn. Bring us porridge every morning. Remember to eat an egg and drink some milk every day. You'll be all right. Chapter three. It was a beautiful day in April 1846. The weather, as so often happens in the west of Ireland, was better in April than in the middle of the summer. The sun shone, the fields were covered with white and yellow flowers, and the birds sang in the hedges. The newly lime-washed walls of the small cottage at Drumshee shone in the sunshine. 
Martin had painted them only a week ago in an effort to show the landlord that he would be able to take the place of his dead father, able to farm the holding, able to take care of his sister and brother, but it had been a wasted effort. Tomorrow the four children were to be taken to the workhouse. So it's just that, like, toying with you, like, oh, okay, everything's going to be all right. Oh, and then it's just this casual aside. Because you think, like, oh, he's whitewashed the walls. That sounds like the activity of someone who's like, everything's all right, and you're getting on with it. And it's just that commonplaceness, and it's... And that's a bigger thing then, isn't it? Because it's like how commonplace death has become. That, like, a dead father is just sort of another thing. Well, and that the book doesn't even cover that winter, actually. And it doesn't cover either of the deaths of the parents. Like, you leave them at the end of chapter two, mum's sick and dad's looking after her. You find them at the beginning of chapter three, there are no parents and the 13-year-old is trying to run the farm. But it's sort of worse for that, right? Like, I feel like that's more gutting than if it left you in the house as the mum and dad slowly died of plague while they were looking after each other. It's the classic horror movie thing of the bit that you don't see is the scariest bit and the most affecting bit. And that's, as I say, that's the first 20 pages, like the roller coaster of this book. We were on the twins before this, so they're diametrically opposed in terms of temperament. I've got a good line sure. here about them that's about how each of them reacts mm-hmm. to stress. Fiona began to feel even more frightened. She hated silence. She always liked to talk about everything, but it looked as if no one was going to say anything at all. And as for Deirdre, well, of course, thought Fiona crossly, who can ever tell with Deirdre? She always looked the same, no matter what happened. Deirdre kept her feelings to herself. Mm. That's a good little portrait of them. They also look physically completely different. Yeah. To the point that someone at the workhouse, when they're there, thinks that they're faking being twins. Fiona is tall and willowy and blonde. And Deirdre's shorter and stockier and has tightly curled brown hair. Like her yeah. brothers. I like, as far as twin tropes go, I quite like these. I like the relationship that they have. It feels real, doesn't it? Completely different skill sets, but they have a real respect, each of them, for what the other can do. They're a proper team, aren't they? Yeah. Which is good. I mean, the boys are kind of more secondary characters. They are. We're not with the boys, are we? Like, it's not their story. Because once they get to the workhouse, girls and boys are segregated. Yeah. And the story follows the girls, so we only see the boys when the girls see the boys, and mostly they don't while they're in the workhouse. Should we talk about the workhouse environment a bit? Well, firstly, there is a literal mistrunchable character, which we need to give mention to. Yeah. So you've got the matron, who is, I mean, basically mistrunchable, like, you know, the strict, severe... Child-hating. ...woman who, who runs the um, workhouse and is sort of most concerned getting as much work out of them as possible and turning as much profit as possible. Even though workhouses are supposed to be charities. Yeah. You know, they're stuck in the sewing room, but the threat is always that you don't want to end up working in the hospital because you're going to die. The hospital wing is full of people who are dying of typhus and everyone who works there also dies of typhus. I think it's such an interesting book to read now in pandemic times, reading books now about previous plagues. I was thinking about the moment when the girls are admitted to the workhouse and they're brought into this room with a bath full of carbolic soap and a furnace and all their good clothes 
are chucked into the fire and their beautifully cared for hair is shorn from their heads and chucked into the fire and they have to scrub themselves with carbolic soap, which really stinks. Yeah. And then put on these like much scratchier, less comfortable, less warm clothes. And it's the humiliation of it. Yeah. I think like especially, you know, like for girls, there's a, like a whole cultural thing about girls and hair. And, you know, like your hair is your crown, your crowning glory. And especially for Fiona, who was the one child in the family with long blonde hair that like her mother had always taken delight in just chopping it off and chucking it into the fire. But, you know, of course it makes sense. They're taking in all these people and they're overcrowded. They would want to get rid of any source of possible infection. Yeah, yeah. But that off the back of, like, losing your house and watching both your parents die is a pretty brutal kicker, in it? And Fiona really struggles with it. Like, Fiona wants to argue back, we were already clean. Oh, she's so gobby. We smelled better. Yeah. (laughs) And... Honestly, like, she's a danger to herself and to others. I got so annoyed at Fiona. <laughs> I imagine it's similar with you. She reminded us of myself so much yeah. that I couldn't yeah. stand her. <laughs> <laughs> no, she is great. But they have a bit of a role reversal, she and Deirdre. So Deirdre finds out that she's quite good at lace making. And lace making, although while they're in the workhouse or the prophets go to the workhouse... It's also the promise of an escape because it's a well-paid trade. Yeah, well, this is the golden age of lace, isn't it? Yeah, so all the women in the sewing room want to learn how to make lace so that they'll have a way of supporting themselves in the world. And there's only so many places on the course to learn lace making. Hmm. And Deirdre, who's just a child, is chosen over an adult woman called Kitty. But they say you're on probation, though. Like, if you don't learn as quickly as the adults, you know, within a week, then Kitty will get your place, which massively incentivizes Kitty to try and disable Deirdre's hands. Oh, yes. God, I've forgotten about this bit. Yeah, she's going to, like, stab her with a sewing needle or something, isn't she? Cut the back of her hand with scissors until she can't sew. And Fiona, who's off in her own dream world, like, Deirdre's working really hard at sewing and Fiona can't even do spinning like she's basically pretending to work in the sewing room so she doesn't get in trouble from matron but she's just sort of you know stacking things in the cupboard just going off in a little daydream in her head about like having a rich American family (laughs) (laughs) but anyway as she's having this daydream she overhears Kitty plotting with her friends to get Deirdre once the session's out and stab her hands and it's Fiona who manages to save Deirdre's hands. She like overhears the whole thing and she makes a plan that she and Deirdre will walk out of the sewing room with Miss O'Connell. They'll walk out with yeah. her and then they'll duck back in through the window and hide in the cupboard every evening yeah. until dinner time so that Kitty yeah. can't stab her hands. So here we're in Fiona's head and she thinks to herself after she's saved Deirdre's hands. I'm the practical one now, she thought in amazement. I'm the one who's making plans. I saved Deirdre. But even that is like, get over yourself, right? <laughs> like, Oh, I love her. I love her. She's like, look at me being the one that's good at this now. She's me, and I hate her for it. 
Oh, I love her for it. I mean, you've already said that she's your MVP, so I'm not allowed her now. So I'm just going to have to, like, slag her off and slay her. I mean, it's entirely you that's made up this rule that we can't have the same MVP. And I'm sticking to it. I'm okay, sticking all right. To it. All right, who's your favourite? <laughs> well, my favourite's Miss O'Connell. So Miss O'Connell, we've not really mentioned yet. She comes into the workhouse as, like, a sort of consultant, I guess. I guess she's doing charity work. Yeah, probably. Yeah, she's got that sort of like... Middle class do-gooder. Yeah. She is very that. She is very that. She's lovely. It's the same as the Oliver Twist narrative of like, middle class saviour comes and picks these poor wretches out of misery kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Which is annoying, but also like, what other way out is there? Well, exactly, (laughs) exactly. We've got Miss Trunchbull in the Matron, and then Miss O'Connell is Miss Honey, basically. Yeah. Takes a shining to Deirdre, and they start like going round her house to do lace-making there and stuff instead. Yeah, because she's got a lamp, so they can do it later into the night. Yeah, and she's just she's just a proper a shield and an umbrella and like a ray of sunlight. But it's the like it's vulnerable as well. There's you know there's a there's a sense of Miss O'Connell being a bit lost and just trying to kind of find her own way through and I think see something in in both the twins but Deirdre in particular. I like that she takes a shine to Fiona as well even though Fiona shows no saleable skills at the time. (laughs) So in this bid to save Deirdre's hands from Kitty Fiona comes over and as her mother would have said like she could talk the hind leg off a donkey so she just starts asking Miss O'Connell loads of intelligent and pertinent questions about lace and lace making (laughs) to the point where like Miss O'Connell's like oh would you like to learn lace making too and Fiona's like no I've just decided I'm going to be rich so I'm planning my wardrobe (laughs) (laughs) I love her (laughs) And what Fiona's doing in the workhouse, apart from pretending to spin, (laughs) she tells stories in the dormitories at night. So Fiona and Deirdre are kind of some of the older children in the girls' dormitory. And Fiona starts telling the little girls the story of Oliver Twist. But obviously, as soon as they get to the point where Oliver's being beaten for asking for more food, everybody cries because it's a bit too close to home, right? It's a bit... (laughs) So then she starts making up her own stories and they go down really well. Like, that's her skill. It's a really clever plot, the way that Oliver Twist is woven into it. Yeah, I love that. The kind of parallels throughout it. And it does, it sort of feels as well, like it's got that feeling of classic 19th century literature, but without kind of getting sucked into the stylism of that. I mean, this is very accessible writing. How young do you think you could read this nine? Yeah, maybe yeah. even slightly younger. Yeah, maybe. Depending on how strong of a reader you are. And how strong of a stomach you've got as well. <laughs> Let's talk Scariometer then, because I think this is an interesting case. Oh, man. It is an interesting case, isn't it? Because it, it's quite high in some ways. So, the in it's... terms of graphic stuff, it's not high like something like The Jumbies or like Rookhaven. But I think there is a different flavour to historical horror, to knowing stuff like this really happened to real people. It's not It's not horror. It's not graphic. And I think there's been certain choices made, you know, not depicting the death of the parents, for example. Yeah. That 
make it a little bit easier on slightly younger readers? The stakes are always high, but it is maybe one of those as well that like it is basically written with the structure and style of a fairy tale to a certain extent. So there's always that sort of sense of safety that it is going to more or less be okay. Hope is a thread throughout. Even as they're leaving the farm, they're stashing their tools in the Iron Age fort to come back to. Yeah. They believe throughout that they're coming back. I think the children hold on to that really tight, and I think that helps buoy you through as a reader as well. Is it somewhere around a six, then? Yeah. I mean, maybe seven, maybe like Kitty Scissorhands. Bumps it up to a seven. <laughs> that is so scary. Like an adult woman gonna come at a child's hands with scissors. I reckon six. Yeah, I think so. Let's give it a six. Well, so there's these actual moments of interpersonal horror, but I think more broadly it's the horror of poverty and starvation, right? Like the yeah. horrors of, you know, early industrial capitalism. I think that's where the choice to make them a fairly middle-class family is really interesting. Because when that first mm. happens, their mum calms them down by saying, well, look, we're luckier than most. We've got oats. Yeah. We've got milk and eggs. We'll be all right. And you've got that whole thing of, like, as a kid, you're having to soak up, like, cool, my mum is telling me that we're not going to die, but everyone around us probably is because we've got more than them. Yeah. And that's just what's going to happen now. Because yeah. that's the way the world is. It's a lot, isn't it? It's full of big ideas like that, I think, this book. Yeah. Which is why I think it's so impressive that it's written at this such an accessible level. And so readable as well. Like, it's fun. It's terrible, but it's a fun book. Same as Oliver Twist. I was thinking as well, it's very female-led throughout. There aren't really many male characters. Like, you've got the matron, who is the villain. Miss O'Connell's kind of a female lead. Later on, you've got Lady Rosalind. Aside from their dad and, like, brief appearance of the landlord now and again. Oh, the landlord's the baddie, isn't he? <laughs> he is. The landlords are always the baddie, listeners. And children reading books. This is what you need to learn. The sooner you learn it, the better. Yeah, especially good read for girls. Um, I think that's it. Okay. So thank you for joining us, listeners. That was episode 24 of Even the Trunchbull. Thank you for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now, as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod, and on Instagram we are at eventhetrunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull.